Hello, I am Professor Kozlowski, and we are beginning our summer business of talking about random bonus lectures and stuff here on Professor Kozlowski Lectures. And we're kicking this season, I'd say that it's fairly charitable, I've only really got two topics to talk about, and I imagine I'll have them both done by the end of the week. Today we are talking about, weirdly enough, Outlander. Yes, Outlander. If you don't know what Outlander is, that's fine. I imagine that many of my listeners are fairly unfamiliar with the franchise, or and quite a few of them are probably also rolling their eyes at hearing that this is the case. But for any of you who heard that I am going to be talking about Outlander today and immediately got really excited, great, because I'm really excited to talk about it too. Today we're talking about Outlander, and we're talking about Outlander in the greater context of chiclet, generally speaking, romantic literature, generally speaking, the novel, generally speaking. Like, I've got a lot of plates to spin on this one, and I'm honestly rather intimidated and daunted by approaching this subject, because once again, you know, I've said this many times before and I'm going to say it again, I am a neophyte when it comes to this stuff. Like, to give some explanation here why Professor Kozlowski recently finished, or recently having finished his Brothers Karamazov series, frequent discusser of philosophy and, you know, modern literature and so on and so forth, is suddenly talking about, you know, romance novels. Well, this has actually become kind of a sort of fascination of mine in the past, let's call it six or seven years or so. Um, so... Like most dudes, I didn't really have much of a vested interest in the whole romantic genre uh, until fairly recently, i.e. I got married, and my wife is very interested in this sort of stuff, and in fact she's the one who requested that I do a lecture on Outlander. So if in fact you were sitting there rolling your eyes and wondering what to do about all this, you can blame her. But, I also want to emphasize, I am eager to talk about this. I want to talk about it. And if you are sitting there thinking, oh god, I don't want to listen to Professor Kozlowski talk about romance novels for an hour and a half, I'm going to try and communicate how excited I am about this and how interested I am in this stuff. If you are not interested in romance novels, suck it. Because they're fascinating, and the history of romance novels is fascinating, and the way that romance novels are talked about is fascinating, and the fact that they have been marginalized and overlooked by generations of dude bros like yourself is part of the reason why they aren't better, I suspect. And we're going to be talking about that later on in this discussion. So please do bear with me. Um... On the other hand, if you are, in fact, huge fans of the romance tradition and of romance novels and of Outlander especially, be aware I'm going to absolutely screw this up. Like, I really don't know that much about the subject. My wife specifically asked me, I want you to do a lecture on Outlander and get your opinions and your perspective on it. So on the one hand, I have no business trying to present a scholarly approach towards Outlander. Like, I just don't. I don't. I haven't read more than the first book. I am fairly familiar with the TV series just from walking in on my wife while she's watching it. But seriously, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge base to work from here. However, I am trying to understand this whole business of romance literature, the romance tradition, and the greater perspective of my experience. Like, at this point, I have been exposed to a lot of romance media. At this point, I've watched 
probably more romantic comedies with my wife than I have straight-up action movies just for my own purposes or doing whatever I want to do just because my wife tends to be the one who decides what is on TV at any given moment because I can always walk away and go play a video game or something. Um, so I want to emphasize, I want to talk about this stuff. Like, I want to do it for me as much as I want to do it for my wife. And as I also want to talk about it because it's interesting and I want to expose more people to this stuff. Plus, from a purely selfish standpoint, I've noticed that it's become a bit of a sausage fest among my listeners, and I am quite tired of that. So I want to reach out to women and to other people with different experiences than my own, and I want to share what I enjoy with them as well. So again, if this isn't your podcast, I am sorry. I hope that you'll listen to it anyway, because it might be interesting, but... The world is not entirely 100% about you. Sorry. So anyway, we're going to talk about romance. We're going to talk about romantic comedies. We're going to talk about the whole romance literature tradition. We're going to fit Outlander into its proper role here. Talk about Outlander's virtues especially. How it both transcends and sort of encapsulates the romantic tradition altogether. Like, it's a whole thing. Um, and I want to start fairly early in this process. Like, for those of you who are waiting to hear me talk about Jamie and Claire and all of the exciting sex scenes, we will get there, I promise. But first, we're going to take a little tour through history. Because I actually think that Outlander is a really interesting, like, encapsulation of the novel tradition as a whole, in some ways. Um... Like, people get really excited about novels, and I, I am one of them, for sure. Like, God knows, I've been reading novels for as long as I've been able to read, and I am 100% invested in the medium and the form. Um, but I also, in my studies of history and my studies of literature, have sort of recognized that the novel is really weird as an artistic tradition, as an artistic medium. Um, like, for one thing, nobody can agree when novels actually start, and I, I don't tend to get too terribly worked up or, or upset about, you know, people who arbitrarily put the date at one place or another. Um, people who say, you know, the real first novel was written in Japan in the 11th century or whatever, and I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, the fact of the matter is the novel is a very ill-defined genre, a very ill-defined artistic structure. Um, and honestly, I think that there are lots and lots of works in the European literary tradition that could be qualified as novels long before the supposed official beginning of the novel. Um, but what I want to start with here, what I want to emphasize about the novel, is that it was very much born as not some kind of super literary, super, you know, meritorious, super artistic form, but rather was the popular alternative to those super artistic forms. Like, most scholars who talk about the history of the novel as this big sort of sprawling thing will usually point to Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe back in 1703 as like the place where the novel really started, where it really kicked off. Um, and the thing to keep in mind about the novel as form starting at this 18th century date is that it was designed to be popular. Like, you know, as much as artistic poetry and artistic music go back all the way to ancient Greece and are tied up with religion and tied up with philosophy and tied up with mythology. As much as there is this very rich historical tradition surrounding, you know, the cultic elements of, of these storytelling branches, 
Robinson Crusoe, Maul Flanders, the early 18th century novel had no pretensions whatsoever. Like, if you wanted an artistic experience in the 18th century, you went and you saw, like, some artist revealing their grand painting or something. Or you went to the opera, or you went to the symphony. Like, there were a lot of artistic al or alternatives out there if you were rich, had a whole bunch of money, and had the refined taste to develop your artistic sensibilities. When, in fact, you get philosophers and artists in the early 18th century talking about art, they're not talking about the novel. They're talking about poetry, they're talking about music, they're talking about opera, because this is the sign of refinement, of gentility. But the novel was presented as an alternative to that. Robinson Crusoe was just a fun story about this dude stranded on a desert island in the form of the travelogues that were very popular at the time, and it was just supposed to be exciting and supposed to be thrilling and supposed to appeal to, you know, anyone. Anyone could pick up this book and read it. At this point in history, there were enough literate people out there without all of the money that they could go to the opera or go to the theater or whatever on a regular basis who just had a little disposable income and the ability to read and wanted to spend their leisure time doing something other than just staring at a wall or darning their own damn socks, and they read a book. They read Robinson Crusoe, or they read Maul Flanders, or they read any of the other 18th century works that came out. Um, for fun, I should emphasize, not for some artistic experience, not for some you know transcendent philosophical insight, because it was fun. Like, if you read Robinson Crusoe or Maul Flanders or Tom Jones or any of those early 18th century novels, they tend to be dumb and fun. And I want to stress that. Like, one of the reasons why I love the novel so much is because it isn't pretentious. It doesn't have this, you know, inherent aspiration to greatness and significance. It can be trash, and it can be okay that it is trash. And the novel has always flirted with that. Ever since Robinson Crusoe, the novel has always had a foot in the trash camp and a foot in the literature camp. And any time that it gets too much in one or the other, I kind of get grumpy about it. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Because Outlander is one foot in the trash camp and one foot in the literature camp, and it's awesome. Like, just like Robinson Crusoe, just like Tom Jones, just like Tristram Shandy, just like so many other works of literature since... It recognizes what it is. It knows that it is appealing to the popular sensibilities on the one hand, and a very specific popular sensibility at that, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, as well as having this sort of grand narrative, this epic scope, this sweep of history that it's looking at that could definitely, you know, reside along the, the alongside with the works of, like, Richardson's Clarissa or Proust's Remembrance of Times Past. Um, we're talking about an ambitious undertaking that is, at the end of the day, popular and commercial. And that's okay. Like, I know that we frequently get very excited about psychological insights and philosophical truths being revealed through literature. Like, we've read our Dostoevsky, we've read our Bulgakov, we've read Faust in this whole lecture business. I want to talk about trashy novels today, and I don't want to pretend like they're anything other than trashy novels except that trashy novels are an art form worth talking about. Um, so there's our first sort of moment in the history leading up to Outlander. Obviously, the second thing we've definitely got to talk about in this whole tradition of romance literature and genre conventions 
we got to talk about the Regency era, and we got to talk about Austin, Bronte, and the women writers of the early 19th century. Um, so in the 18th century, the novel is very much a playground. Nobody knows what it's supposed to be doing. It is just whatever sells, whatever's fun, whatever's a good time. So you get Robinson Crusoe and the adventures of random dude on random deserted island. You get Maul Flanders, the lady of ill repute, and all of her misadventures. You get Tom Jones doing the whole, like, okay, we're going to do Homeric epic storytelling, but we're going to apply it to this random dude who is of no consequence and not important. We get Tristram Shandy basically never telling its own story, but just getting in its own way because narrative devices for, you know, hundreds of pages. It's a Wild West version of an art form here. And, like, I can go on. 18th century literature is just wonderful. If you haven't spent a lot of time there, take a look sometime. I would love to do a lecture on Veland, the Transformation, or on Defoe, or on any of these writers. Um, but come the 19th century, things are changing. Um, in the Regency era, by this time, the novel, as a popular form of art and entertainment, has kind of become unpopular amongst the gentry, like all these people generally consider the novel to be beneath them. It is just trash, as far as most people are concerned. Uh, like, towards the uh, beginning of the 19th century, the novel isn't terribly respected. You'll notice that most of the great romantic artists that we've talked about in this class, like Don Juan by, uh, by Byron or Faust by Goethe, they generally reject the novel as a form. You're not going to see a whole lot of romantic novels in the sort of grand romantic tradition sense. Werner's a bit of an outlier insofar as, as it is doing novel-type uh, narration, but it is at the end of the day a novella, not a novel. Those big clunky works are less important than they used to be. Instead, we're seeing a lot more epic poetry. We're seeing Byron's Child Herald and Don Juan. We're seeing Tennyson doing King Arthur as an epic poem. Um, we're very much straying away from the vulgar, popular novel form. Part of that is because by relegating it, by considering it just trash and popular trash at that, there is increasingly all of these big important artists and liter literary writers, these dudes who are controlling the literary and artistic world, who are looking down at the novel and saying, I can do better than this. But by ignoring it, they very much left the novel in an even more sort of unwatched space, and if the men were too busy to enjoy these vulgar common pastimes because they were too busy doing business or too busy doing art, well, the women at this time don't have much to do at all. Um, as we talked about in my Love and Friendship class, like if you listen to the lecture on Rousseau and, and Wollstonecraft or what Nietzsche is saying about women in the 19th century, women really, in the 19th century, didn't have much going on. Like, less than they usually did. In the medieval world, women had an extremely important role in, you know, keeping the family, keeping the household, making sure that everything ran smoothly. In the early modern period, women also had a super important role in all of this, but by the mid-18th century, throughout the Enlightenment and into the early 19th century, women were very much relegated to 
parlors and sitting rooms and were not allowed to participate in the economic and, you know, even domestic needs of the household. Um, rich women were sitting at home, not even able to take care of their children because the nurses were responsible for doing that. And as a result, a woman's life very much became i.e. get married first and foremost, but once they are married, you just sit around and, and do nothing and entertain other women, and, you know, there's this sort of secret second society going on totally independent of the man's world. And because of all of that leisure time, because of all of that free time, because of all of this interest in sort of the social dynamics and this complex cutthroat world of women trying to, like, make power plays and, and sort of guarantee their safety and security in a very economically disadvantageous world for them, there were a lot of women reading novels at this point. Starting with some of those 18th century classics that we were talking about, again, Richardson's Clarissa was a huge favorite among women in the early or late 18th, early 19th century. But gradually, because this art form was, you know, frowned upon, women started writing novels as well. And this is the golden age of women writers in, in a very real sense. Like, this is the age that Jane Austen was writing, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot would be writing shortly after this, as well as George Sand. Um, all of these women were, were capturing their own experiences, talking about their view of society as it was. And because they were sitting in this position where they weren't distracted by the cares of industry or business or any of these supposedly exciting, historically moving things that were going on around them, they actually had a very keen eye on what the society actually looked like, how people actually talked to each other and worked. Um, as we speak, I am rereading Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and I say this being, again, a total Jane Austen neophyte. This is only the second time that I've read it. Um, I have not read any of Austen's other works, although it is definitely my intention to do so. I've read some of the Bronte sisters. Again, my knowledge here is patchy. I've never actually taken a British literature course. Most of my knowledge is just stuff that I've read along the way. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that this stuff is keenly incisive about British culture and British history at the time, about European history and culture at this time. Like, we learn more from reading these writers who are women than we are from all of these supposedly grand artistic writers like Goethe, like, you know, Byron, when it comes to understanding what is actually going on at this moment in time in these places. You know, Byron is setting all of his works in the past. Goethe is sending his works in the past. It takes writers like Austin, like the Brontes, to actually look at their time, their culture, and talk about it, that time, the present. In a very real sense, at the same time as all these grandiose romantic novels are being written, we have this nascent sense of realism that is growing out of these writers, and especially women writers in particular. Um, and obviously, these novels have an incredible amount of pull. Like, when you stop to say, you know, what is the greatest novel written by an English-speaking writer, you're probably going to talk about Ulysses, and you're probably going to talk about Virginia Woolf, but you're not going to take a whole lot of time before you get to Austin and the Brontes. Um, these are some of the most formative works of literature for the novel specifically and for realism as a genre generally. Like, this is a big deal. 
And what's more, as much as we might talk about Ulysses and Virginia Woolf, and as much as we might talk about, you know, Trollope and Thackeray in the late 19th century, as much as we might look at the grand tradition of novels and say, okay, the greatest novel is probably located somewhere in this 19th century Russian, early 20th century English and American world, at the end of the day, I think Jane Austen's probably read much more widely. Like, she gets a bad rap, and we'll talk about that in its own time, but seriously, she's one of the few writers writing in the early 19th century who people pick up and read for fun now, today. Like, and I'm not talking about just the adaptations, I'm saying that something about what Jane Austen was writing about, what the Brontes were writing about, what, you know, George Eliot and Middlemarch is writing about, resonates with women especially, for 200-plus years. This is a big deal. And to underestimate the influence of these novels is really easy, because, again, you know, they seem to be these small accounts of, you know, women trying to plan uh, advantageous marriages for themselves. But they're also super important. Like, I don't think there's any other work of literature that has this kind of pull. You know, as much as we as much as we just spent like weeks talking about Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and I would definitely emphasize this is one of those novels that people read and read and read even into the present, just as Moby Dick is read over and over again into the present, just as, you know, people keep reading Paradise Lost or people people keep reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, a lot of people will pick up those works because they are interested in them, but not nearly as many as are picking up picking these works up because somebody told them that they are important. You know, their their high school teacher told them, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey are a big deal, you need to read them. Or their college professor said, okay, you need to read the Brothers Karamazov because it's important for your development, your education. And this is also true about Jane Austen, don't get me wrong. Like, again, there's a fair number of literature courses out there that are teaching Austen and emphasizing these are great works, you need to read them, you need to know them. But unlike a lot of those other works, people are picking up Jane Austen just because they want to read Jane Austen. And there's a sort of complicated relationship here, I should emphasize. Like, part of the reason why Jane Austen has remained so popular is because Jane Austen has been so frequently adapted. Like, in the 90s, I think every single novel that Austen wrote, with the exception of her, like, big, long, unfinished final project, got adapted into a period piece. You know, you've got your crazy British, like, mini-series version with Colin Firth as Darcy. You've got your Kira Knightley adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. You've got, you know, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow doing Emma, and you've got uh, oh my gosh, Kate Winslet doing Sense and Sensibility. Like, there's even a Mansfield Park adaptation from the early 2000s. Like, Jane Austen got a lot of pull in the 90s especially. Um, so part of the popularity is undoubtedly people who are watching these movies, enjoying these movies, and are like, hey, I actually want to go back and read the books, and then they're, you know, the books become more popular as a consequence. But notice, too, that's a two-way street. You can't just explain the book's popularity by the movie's popularity. The movie got made because the books were popular to begin with. The fact of the matter is, Austin unlike many of the other writers who are considered important in the 19th and 20th century, never fell out of favor. People have been reading and rereading her for 200 years pretty consistently. A claim that, like, only Shakespeare can sort of 
claim to in the whole tradition of British literature. Like, yeah, people keep reading Ulysses, and people keep reading Dostoevsky, and people keep reading Byron to some degree, I guess. But Austen? Like, random preteen girls are picking her up and reading her and enjoying it. Like, deriving direct pleasure from it, with no, you know, nobody hanging over their head saying, this is important, you need to read this. Nobody is forcing them to read these books, and yet they are being read. So I want to emphasize that as well. Like, something about these women's experience in the early 19th century is important and significant to a lot of women and a lot of people today. And I think at least part of the reason is because Jane Austen put women in a position of power in her novels. A weird position of power, a power in powerlessness, like here are all of these women who are, you know, specifically contriving these marriages and engaging in these relationships and, you know, learning these valuable lessons, specifically because they're all economically disadvantaged, like all of Jane Austen's heroines tend to be in a position where their livelihood is about to get stripped from them. They are, you know, all of these daughters who their estate has been entitled to somebody else and as a result cannot be passed down to them, so they are, you know, like, carefully, wily, using every, you know, stratagem and trick that they have in order to get into a situation where they won't have to be impoverished for the rest of their life. Like, this is, there's something dire hanging over all of these women's lives in these Jane Austen novels, something that's fairly easy to forget in all of the machinations and manipulations and social interactions. But that's the key here. Social interaction became power for these women. You know, you invited a whole bunch of people over to a ball so you could get married, so you could extricate yourself from your ugly, impoverished situations. And generally speaking, most of the women in Jane Austen novels marry up. They marry into a better class of, of person, a better class of society. A relatively, you know, lower middle class uh, daughter ends up marrying some upper middle class or higher high class man and getting herself taken care of for the rest of her life, being protected for the rest of her life. And I want to emphasize that. Like, on the one hand, the feminists in the room are probably sitting there like, ooh, that's really gross. Like, women having to manipulate men's sexuality and manipulate their desires in order to achieve even basic, you know, economic stability. Yeah, that sucks. But it doesn't change the fact that it's power. It doesn't change the fact that in this society, being attractive and being smart and being clever and being tricky was rewarded. So Austen's novels are full of gold diggers in some sense, and unashamed gold diggers at that. Like Mrs. Bennet and all of her daughters literally says at the outset of the novel, my goal is to get all these girls married, and I don't care how the heck I'm going to do it. There's something deceiving and wrong and weird and manipulative about that, yes, but there's also something really honorable about it. She is protecting her family. And as much as Mr. Bennett is sort of the voice of reason, sort of, you know, making his snarky quips to undermine whatever her efforts are, at the same time, she is right, and she is doing something good here. And if anything, Lizzie and her insistence that she refuses to marry for any other reason than love is kind of dumb and short-sighted as is especially emphasized by her uh, friend, Miss Lucas, who does in fact marry Mr. Collins even after Lizzie refuses him, because Ms. Lucas can't afford to turn him down. Um, so let me emphasize here, like, 
major moment in the history of the novel, and especially the history of the romance novel generally, these are stories of women in power, women who are active in the securing of their fortunes and the future of their development. In many ways, they are very parallel to old fairy tales. You know, the, the young man who sets out to find his fortune is paralleled by the young woman who is trying desperately to marry up. Um, there is agency here. There is power here. These are stories of capable women in the same way that, you know, action novels are filled with stories of capable men. But, and I really want to emphasize this, but, as much as these novels were a huge hit in the early 19th century, and lots of people were reading them, men and women, a lot of people kind of missed the point here. Um, as much as, you know, it was great that all of these women were writing at the beginning of the 19th century, and as much as the novel was very much elevated from this, you know, like, totally ignored, totally trashy, totally vulgar pastime that only women and children were able to engage in because men were too important to do these things, by the middle of the 19th century, the novel was very much back in force. The novel was very popular. The novel was, again, heralded as being of significant artistic merit. And it was the men dominating it again. Shocker. Like, as soon as there is more money and more artistic, you know, honor to be gained, all the women are out and all the men are in. Where we had all of these very realistic novels about, you know, women struggling to survive in a difficult situation in Regency England, now, in the late 19th century, instead we see Thackeray, we see Trollope making all of these very realistic novels about men who are seeking their fortunes in Parliament, or, or who are navigating the, the sort of vicissitudes of 19th century Victorian life. And I want to kind of emphasize that this sucks. Like... I like Trollope. Like, some of his novels are really cool. I haven't read a whole heck of a lot of Thackeray. I haven't read, you know, you know, too many of the 19th century writers. Like, honestly, I've got a lot more experience with Dickens and with uh, Thomas Hardy um, than most of the other great 19th century writers. But I noticed the same thing in all of these cases. Where Austen and Bronte and the other women writers of the early 19th century were writing realism before realism was cool... All of these men are kind of trying to do the same thing, but worse. Like, Dickens is his own thing, for sure. Like, you read Oliver Twist, you read David Copperfield, obviously he's got his own agenda, and he's looking at, you know, impoverishment in the 19th century, especially as it, appeals, as it applies to, like, orphans and to, you know, whole families rather than women especially. But one of the things you'll notice is that there are a lot of 19th century dude writers in the back half of the 19th century who are writing Jane Austen novels poorly. Like, Trollope, especially, you know, his first couple of novels in the, in the Palliser series, you know, he gets really excited about, like, Palliser goes to Parliament, hooray! Um, but he also has all of these stories about women trying to make advantageous matches, and they're just weird. Like, some of them are fun weird. I love the Eustace Diamonds, because it's clear that, that Trollope has no idea what he's getting into, and he very much gets over his head really quickly. Um, but it is, you know woman scheming to successfully secure advantageous situation for herself, specifically in this case by stealing her own friggin' diamonds, which I'm pretty sure even came as a surprise to Trollope by the end of the novel. What he's doing is what he saw was successful about Austen and the Brontes and these other women writers, but he doesn't have a woman's experience, and as a consequence, it kind of falls flat on its face. 
What's more, it's a different time period. Women are struggling with different problems at this moment in time, and it kind of comes off as false as a consequence. Now, admittedly, American writers are doing something completely different. Like, American culture in the 19th century is very far removed from British culture, and as much as like we could spend some time talking about their business and the history of the novel, they are certainly less relevant to our ultimate aim of trying to talk about Outlander and trying to talk about like the whole romance subgenre altogether. Um, but I want to sort of dwell on this weird moment in the back half of the 19th century because... They aren't read. Like, nobody reads Trollope, nobody reads Thackeray, unless you're specifically studying the back half of the 19th century. You know, Dickens, yeah, people are going to read Dickens forever, and, you know, even Thomas Hardy has, like, his adherents and stuff. But notice, like, even Thomas Hardy's most famous novel is friggin' Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which is very much doing the Jane Austen, you know, here is a woman trying to make her fortune in the world sort of situation. Something that Austen herself did better. Um... I guess lots of people like Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Don't get me wrong. I didn't get much out of it. I'm a huge fan of Return of the Native. Not so much Tess of the D'Urbervilles. But there's one other thing that's going on in the back half of the 19th century that I really want to emphasize. And once again, we've got some really cool women in, in this process as well. And once again, popular novels, popular stories are becoming cool again. Like, as much as, you know, Thackeray and Trollope and Dickens and so on are sort of riding this wave of, hey, you know, Austin and company made the novel a, a valid art form again, let's, let's do some artistically merit talking about society stuff. At the same time, this is also the moment when, you know, there were all of these periodicals flying around London, around all of Europe altogether, and a whole bunch of writers were making their careers by writing trash. Like, real trash. Like, we're going to publish Sherlock Holmes stories every week for the, the readers of The Strand, to the point that Doyle tries to kill off his own character, and everybody, like, gets so upset about it that they demand that they bring him back, and he has to, like, resurrect Sherlock Holmes from the dead, thus presaging a huge hundred-year tradition of revolving door deaths of serial beloved characters. Um... But as much as Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes are sort of like the quintessential example of, hey, let's do trashy literature serialized and, you know, aimed specifically at popular leadership who aren't looking for an artistic experience, you also can't talk about that without talking about Baroness Orsi and the Scarlet Pimpernel series, which is just crazy shenanigans in the French Revolution and, like, basically the precursor to Zorro and Batman going around rescuing British nobles from French revolutionaries, like, with this dashing swordplay and, you know, careful disguises and, and all that fun stuff. And once again, we see, you know, Baroness Orsi is definitely writing as a woman capitalizing on, the, on this moment in time. There was no patriarchy in this particular arena. Um, like, trash was still trash. Anyone was allowed to do trash at this point in time. And, you know, the Scarlet Pimpernel is trash. Like, I've read a few of them and they're fine. Like, they're fun. They're stupid. But, you know, um, it was okay for her to write that. Like, there was no competition there. It, it wasn't like, no, you women need to stay home and, and not per peruse these, like, important male things. Um, the way that so much of the rest of the literary world was behaving at this particular point in time. There are exceptions. You know, Shelley's writing Frankenstein and, 
you know, Shelley's getting lots of other stuff off the ground. There are lots of women poets like Emily Dixonson who are, who are doing their own thing at this particular point in time. But generally speaking, the big literary figures of the late 19th century are all heavy-hitting dudes, again. Um, like, there are more women writing trashy, you know, serialized novels than there are women who are writing, you know, big, ambitious works of, quote, literature, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, and obviously, like, this leads, this, this whole weird sort of interest in the, the trash on the one hand and, and the literary on the other, both of which are kind of struggling at this particular moment in the back half of the 19th century. Like, the literary novel is not nearly as cool as it used to be when Austin was writing it, and on the other hand, like, the trashy novel is back and more powerful than ever before. At this particular moment in time, it's also the weird moment when sex becomes popular again. Like, we talked about this a little during my Love and Friendship class, but this is, you know, the exact moment in, in late Victorian London when, uh, Francis Burton publishes the Kama Sutra under questionably or questionably legitimate circumstances. And this is also the time when D.H. Lawrence is starting to write his really sexually explicit, or at least really sexually explicit for the time, novels like Sons and, Lo and Lovers. Um, it's weird. Trash is, in fact, being elevated at this point. This is not the first time that this has happened by an extent of the imagination. Honestly, the entire history of art has basically been, like, trash developing, and then trash being elevated, and then the, you know, this kind of trash being now this high art form. You know, that's what romanticism effectively is. Like, we're going to take a bunch of crappy folk stories that nobody takes seriously, and we're going to elevate them to high art. You know, we're going to take the old Faust story and give it a new coat of paint, and now it's art. We're going to take a drinking song, and we're going, to, and Beethoven's going to make his Ninth Symphony out of it. Like, romanticism is just trash elevated, and realism is just trash elevated. But here we see an important detail. We have trash in a new sense. We have the serialized trash of Conan Doyle and Baroness Orsi. We have the, like pornographic trash that is circulating around Victorian circles, and now that's being elevated as well. Now we see a fusion of the pornographic, the particularly sexual literature, being fused with actual literature in the works of D.H. Lawrence and others. Um, it's going to take a while before this actually like develops into the full-fledged romance novel, unfortunately, but there's way too many steps to sort of track along the way. Um, after Lawrence, obviously, we get World War One and World War Two. We get the pulps, which are also sexually and, like, violently explicit. Um, we get, again, new layers of trash here. Um, I should also emphasize, like, as much as the pulps are trashy and sexually explicit, we also are starting to see the origins of comic books and... Let me tell you, like, I haven't done a whole heck of a lot of research on comic books, but I know for a fact that, like, trash came into all forms in the original line of comic books. Like, we very much get excited and, and very much enshrine superhero comics, like the birth of Superman and the, the start of early characters like Batman and stuff. Um, and we emphasize that, you know, these were very much, like, deliberately uh, devoted to children. But I should also emphasize that comic books embraced a whole lot more than that. Like, there were a lot of horror comic books once upon a time in, in the pulp tradition. There were a lot of very sexually explicit comic books, especially among the, like, sort of hanging around uh, the noir tradition. Um, like, there's a lot going on in 
the whole early Hollywood world that is very sexually explicit and very, very sort of quasi-pornographic, um, the lines were not very clear at this point. Before the Hayes Code, literally anything was going. Like, tons and tons of, of directors and, and Hollywood studios were producing some pretty wildly inappropriate stuff at this particular point in time. Um, but with the end of World War II came a new sort of renewed effort towards family values, getting rid of all of the sort of wilder, woolier parts of Hollywood and comic books and, you know, pulp literature and all sorts of things. Um, and trash kind of got respectable. Um, everyone realized that trash was getting too trashy at this point in time, in the 40s and 50s. And as much as, like, there were all of these soldiers overseas who did, in fact, engage in some pretty in a, or pretty explicit activities as far as, you know, both their physical prostitution and, and so on, as well as the literature that they were reading from, you know, trashy publications in France and England, um, they came home and they didn't want that stuff anymore. They, at the very least, did not want their kids exposed to that stuff. So the 1950s were very much not any cleaner than the 40s and 30s and the crazy moments in Hollywood, but they were trying to be. They were more respectable. They were wallpapered over fairly significantly. Which is important for our sort of narrative of the history of the novel and where exactly we're going, because this absolutely ushered in the sexual revolution of the 60s, and with the sexual revolution of the 60s came, finally, the Harlequin romance novel. Like, the trashy paperback with the bodice rippers on the covers, or, you know, like the crazy sex scenes in the middle of the of the book that like you would go to a bookstore and you'd find like rack after rack after rack of these trashy novels all creased and the like the really hot sex scene right in the middle of the book um and this itself is a you know complex sort of historical moment and like i don't want to get too deep into it i've done a little bit of research on the harlequin romance novel enough to know that like the actual harlequin publisher was really based in canada weirdly enough and was publishing romance first, but then, like, somebody was like, hey, maybe we can make some money if we sell some trashier, more explicitly sexual material. And apparently, like, that immediately flew off the shelves. And like, yeah, let's do that for a while. Um, so, in fact, most of the early romance writers that we associate with these sorts of trashy Harlequin romances were, ironically enough, Canadian and European writers, not American writers. Like, there's even a story about how, like, Harlequin specifically brought on one person as their American writer, and then, like, Nora Roberts showed up and was like, hey, do you want me to write books for you? And they're like, nah, we've already got an American writer, thanks, which launches her whole career, and it's this whole thing. Um, suffice it to say that from the 60s through the 70s into the 80s, there was a booming market for this stuff. Like, Harlequin romance novels were, at one point in time, the highest-grossing publishing company in the world for a while there. Um, clearly, there was a market for this, a need for this. And again, like back in the early 19th century, the consumers here were primarily women. Again, we have a situation where women are largely sidelined in the business and economic worlds, thanks to all the soldiers coming home from overseas in the 1950s, um, coming home from the war, whether if you were living in England or, or France or whatever. And now all these women are sitting at home with nothing to do. TV is boring. All of this stuff does not appeal to, you know, a frankly underwhelming sexual experience they have in most of their households. Like, this was not a great time to be a woman if, in fact, you were looking for an exciting and fulfilling life. 
So they're reading these books. Like, they're reading these books by the armload. Um, like, these are incredibly popular, and I cannot de-emphasize or emphasize this enough. You know, once upon a time, when I, when I was a kid in the 90s, and, like, I had a little used bookstore that was, like, 10 minutes away from my home. Like, I practically lived at this place. It was, like, on a weekly basis, I would make my parents drive out, and we would check out the children's section and just wander around. And eventually they had, like, a pre-owned section, you know, the way that almost all used bookstores operate now. Um, like... This was one of the pioneers of that particular form. The entire back half of the store was just shelf after shelf of just trashy paperbacks. And there were literally like three shelves reserved explicitly for romance novels. Like, I would beeline to the back corner where I knew the science fiction was. And it was like half a shelf that took up like this tiny little corner. corner and it would just be filled with old Isaac Isimov and, and L. Ron Hubbard and, you know, the real classics of the, of the golden age of science fiction. But there were literally rack on rack on rack of these romance novels. And they would go in and they would come out and they would just be this constant cycle. Um, there were tons of readers for this. They were quick and easy to consume and to read. And they were incredibly disposable. Which, as much as this is like crappy business, like terrible economics 101, you know, planned obsolescence is a very profitable marketing strategy. And having a bunch of novels that you could turn out like on a weekly, even daily basis, have people read them and then throw them out never to be seen again to be, or to be passed on to the next person who wants to read them, people who were just in this for the cheap thrill and then get rid of it, this was a booming friggin' industry. Um, there was tons of demand for this. Um, this was, again, the most profitable literary genre in the back half of the 20th century. Like, we cannot stress enough how many women were reading these things and getting excited about the sex scenes especially. The sexually explicit material was a formula for success in the entire back half of the 20th century. And this very much translates to the big romantic comedy boom of the 1990s especially. Like, there were a lot of romances in early Hollywood. You walk, watch a lot of the old black-and-white movies, and you'll see tons and tons of romance stories. And then throughout the 50s and 60s, they kind of vanish for a while, largely replaced by the big blockbusting musicals and epics and all that stuff. Like, you know, Dr. Zhivago is very much it's a romance in its own story, as is Gone with the Wind. Um, but they were a far cry from the cheap, easy romances that they were making back in the 30s and 40s, you know, back when Audrey Hepburn got her start and, you know, became a huge icon for decades to come. You know, this was disposable, entertaining stuff, and many of them were, in fact, sort of, like, aimed, targeted at women especially, but that had kind of faded away. And by the 1980s and 90s, with the sort of advent of the, you know, early romantic comedies, the big hitters, like When Harry Met Sally and, and Sleepless in Seattle and, you know, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks becoming this, like, global phenomenon, um, there was, again, this we were capitalizing on the same sort of demographic, the same sort of market as we saw with the romance novels in the 70s and 80s. Now, these are toned down, of course. Again, the Hays Code is in place. There are, in fact, some pretty sexually explicit stuff from the 70s and 80s, especially, but they were mostly targeted at men, not women. 
something that sort of evaporated when the pornography industry became its own thing. Um, but in the 90s especially, there were all of these, again, sexually frustrated women who had this need for an outlet and who saw sort of a fulfillment in these stories about women actually making these relationships. Now, it's obviously way more complicated than this, and I have, you know, only so much to say because I only have only so much experience to speak from here. But again, the 90s movies, the, the romantic comedy tradition is well entrenched. Like, as every time that I ask my students, you know, what, are, what is your favorite movie to make some point that I'm trying to make about, like, subjectivity or art criticism or whatever, um, I usually pull the room and I usually get some pretty predictable answers from the guys in the room. Like, I always get somebody who is, you know, a big fan of some horror movie like Alien or The Thing. Um, I usually get some Marvel entries on the list. But frequently, when the women are brave enough to actually speak up, it's 10 Things I Hate About You, or it's, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, or it's When Harry Met Sally, or, you know, any number of those classic 90s and early 2000s romantic comedies that became really popular and had their own very determined fan base. You know, as much as, like... Today is a day of blockbusters and, you know, heavy-duty, special-effects-heavy movies that run for two and a half hours and have superheroes or Star Wars or whatever. You know, part of the reason why Netflix and so many of the streaming services were so sex so successful making these sort of B-level, you know, entries, these B-level romantic comedies or these B-level romantic dramas was because they were filling a niche that Hollywood just wasn't anymore. Um, like, the romantic comedy very much died out in 2005 to 2010 because it was no longer economically viable for a huge studio to pour that much effort into a movie that only a certain demographic was going to watch. But it's more complicated than that. And this is where I want to sort of turn our attention to what is really coming up when we talk about Outlander. Like, in the 2000s especially... Um, suddenly everybody noticed that women wanted to read books about romance and about sexuality and so on and so forth, largely because this is when Stephanie Meyer wrote Twilight and it sold like friggin' hotcakes. Um, again, this is something that I lived through, so it's kind of hard to talk about it as though it's history, but at the same time I recognize that a decent amount of my readership probably did not experience this phenomenon, but I cannot emphasize exactly how many people were friggin' reading the Twilight novels as they came out in the mid-2000s. Like, I was in college in 2005 to 2008 when it was really starting to, like, when the movies were being made and it was really starting to pick up speed. And I remember when my girlfriend at the time started reading the Twilight novels and, like, that was suddenly all she could talk about and they were awesome and, you know, she was quoting them on a regular basis and this was considered, like, the pinnacle of romance as far as a lot of people were concerned. And, you know, I, I read The Host, Stephanie Meyer's science fiction novel, because it seemed like that would be the one that appealed to me more. And I... I I couldn't do it. Like, I love science fiction, and that's why I couldn't do it. Like, she was doing something absolutely awful to science fiction. I'm pretty sure even the hardcore Stephanie Meyer fans are like, dude, you can't start with the host. That's the worst one. Anyway, whatever the, the explanation here is, Stephanie Meyer really flew off the shelves, and there was backlash. Um, and that's the next thing that I really want to emphasize here. Like, as much as we've kind of been talking about the history of women's literature and the history of romance novels generally, one of the things that I haven't been emphasizing is that women's literature has almost always been marginalized. 
and marginalized in a way that hasn't necessarily been redeemed. Like, marginalized literature is not a new concept. Again, I started this whole discussion of the history of the novel by emphasizing that Defoe was writing trash back in the 18th century. Trash has always been a part of the novel tradition. Popularity has always been a part of the novel tradition. Any, you know, scholar in some ivory hall who is convinced that, like, Rob, or Daniel Defoe is not worth his notice because he is a scholar of Beckett and, you know, Joyce and Wolf and, you know, that guy can go screw himself. I don't care about him. He is doing something to literature that is ultimately harmful, I tend to think. Um, but at the same time, I've also emphasized that many of these trashy forms have been sort of co-opted, redeemed, turned into something literary. The folk tales of the 18th century became the romantic novels of the early 19th century, the great rom romantic poets and so on. The trashy literature for women of the early 19th century became the foundation for the great works of literature of the late 19th century. And this cycle keeps on going. But there is an alarming amount of pushback against women's literature becoming legitimate in a way that you just don't see with a lot of even other marginalized genres. Like, take this particular moment in history, in 2022. Um, we are, you know, absolutely swimming in movies about superheroes, in movies about science fiction concepts, you know, like, I'm talking at the point where everything everywhere all at once has passed uncut gems as A24's highest grossing movie of all time, um, which, by the way, is a multiverse concept, high concept science fiction movie that is silly and ridiculous and definitely, in, like, engages them directly with a lot of trashy concepts. Um, but we as a culture have generally agreed, okay, science fiction is cool, man. It is not marginalized. Ever since Star Wars, science fiction is a legitimate source for money to be poured into, and it is a legitimate pastime for teen boys to get excited about. And, you know, even before Star Wars, there were a lot of science fiction novels that are now being sort of reassessed and considered literature. Like, the Library of America over the last ten years has adopted dozens of science fiction novels, the writings of P.K. Dick and, and Kurt Vonnegut, and all of these are now considered literary, part of the American canon. Um, likewise, fantasy literature. It has had a rougher time of it than science fiction has, but, you know, Lord of the Rings is widely considered a classic at this point in time, and nobody judges you. Nobody looks askance at you for reading, you know, the, like, Last Unicorn, or the the... Sabriel novels, or anything by Brandon Sanderson. Um, this is widely accepted. Um, however, romance novels really haven't. People still kind of wink at each other when they find out that you're reading some vampire romance novel from the mid-2000s in the vein of Stephanie Meyer. Um, people still exchange winks when they find out that, you know, you are reading Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. And there's a complicated relationship here. Um, part of that is undoubtedly because these works are widely considered bad. You know, people raise up good science fiction and they ignore the fact that there is so much trash from the early pulps in the, the 40s and the 50s, and that, you know, a lot of science fiction novels really are terrible. Like, even written by some of the greatest writers. Like, there's a lot of trashy Heinlein out there, there's a lot of trashy Arthur C. Clarke out there. I've read a fair amount of it. 
but generally, if I, you know, decide to sit down with, I don't know, friggin' The Cat Who Walked Through Walls by Robert Heinlein, which is just bad, people sort of laugh and they say, hey, you know, how is that? Like, are you enjoying it? And I can say it's so bad that it's good, and nobody seems to, to have a question about it. People recognize that you are allowed to read trash in certain circumstances. There is approved trash out there. You can watch the Evil Dead movies, ironically. You can watch Sharknado, ironically. Like, this is fine from a cultural standpoint. But if you're watching Fifty Shades of Grey, the relationship is different. People judge you differently. It's not, I am watching it ironically, or rather, you have to state that you are watching it ironically. And even then, people are going to be like, eh, are you sure? Are you sure you're not just into that? And obviously, it's complicated here. Like, these, there has been a lot of discussion about, you know, the pernicious effects of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series, or the pernicious view of sexuality and love that is apparent in E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't want to deny that. But I also want to emphasize that nobody is saying the same stuff on such a huge scale about trashy science fiction or trashy fantasy. Like, every now and again, you will hear, you know, somebody wrote this fantasy novel and it's got this really sexually explicit scene in it and people are really grumpy about it for one reason or another. Or, you know, you will have huge debates about the politics of a particular writer like Orson Scott Card and his homophobia or J.K. Rowling and her trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Like, that's a different question and a different conversation. And as much as I'm hesitant to say it, is happening at a way higher level of discussion than just, hey, you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey because you're into, you know, S&M. The fact that it's sexually explicit makes us weird about it. And what's more, the fact that it's specifically dedicated to women makes us weird about it. There is an illegitimacy about trash in this particular environment that isn't present when you're talking about trash for most other genres. Like, there are tons of action movies out there that are exploitative and misogynistic and kind of terrible, and we give them a pass. Like, I was just watching uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was, like, kind of a big deal at the time. It's considered one of Quentin Tarantino's greatest movies. You know, it was highly considered art at the time. It was nominated for Oscars. It's this whole thing. It's also kind of super messed up patriarchal. Like... The subtext of the whole novel is, or the whole story is basically like, if only there were strong men around when Charles Manson tried to kill What's-Her-Face, then, you know, Charles Manson wouldn't have stood a chance. Man, we, men are great, aren't they? And it's just like, what are you doing? How is this still getting passed off without any questions or without any sort of interrogation? And there was some at the time, for sure but not nearly as much as we have about people who are reading trashy romance novels. Not, much, not as much historically, at any rate. We accepted this. Even in 2018, 19, 20, we accepted this. However, there is some pushback. Like, I want to stress, there, I've seen more and more effort to sort of reassess, reevaluate what happened with Stephanie Meyer, reevaluate what happened with E.L. James, reevaluate the whole phenomenon surrounding these sexually explicit women writers talking about romance and targeting their book, books towards women, and general acceptance of it. 
Stuff like Turning Red or The Lego Movie 2, where all of a sudden we're looking at women's experiences as preteens, as teenagers, sort of experimenting with their with these media, you know, writing cringy fan fiction, all that stuff. And now we're trying as a culture to sort of, like, accept this, recognize, no, this was actually a good thing. This was something important to our development. And that knee-jerk negative reaction, all those middle school boys, you know, teasing girls because they liked vampire novels, like, there's nothing that wasn't as bad as we thought it was at the time. There's nothing inherently more stupid about glittery Edward in the Twilight movie than there is about, you know, just relentlessly good Captain America in any Marvel entry. Um, there's no reason why that should be singled out and mocked, ridiculed. And the people who like that stuff should be singled out and mocked and ridiculed. And this is where I want to sort of turn it around, because Outlander... As much as Outlander is kind of a recent phenomenon, people getting into Outlander has become very recent. Like, in the last five, seven years, this is where people have really been jumping on that Outlander bus, largely because the Stars series got a lot of attention and has been, like, nominated for Emmys, and, you know, a lot of people are watching that, and it's, you know, coming at the same time as the whole streaming services thing is happening, and a lot more romantic comedies and romantic type movies when, or movies dedicated to women and sort of targeted at women are coming out and becoming more popular and more mainstream. It was there for a lot of this story. Like, the original Outlander was actually published in 1991, which is just baffling to me. Like, I cannot understand how this whole story fits together. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that Outlander is different. Like, it's not so different. It's not in a completely different category or genre, and I'm not about to tell you that it's, you know, transcendent art on the order of, again, Joyce's Ulysses or something like that. Um, it's not even transcendent art on the order of, like, you know, the great works of Toni Morrison or Annie Prowl or, or some of the literary writers um, who are women working in the 90s, 2000s, and so on and so forth. But it is really friggin' good. And... It hasn't been recognized as being really friggin' good until really recently, and even then, it remains marginalized. There is a lot of pushback against it. Again, I had a lot of caveats at the beginning of this lecture because I knew when I said I was going to talk about girly romance novels for, you know, an hour and 40 minutes that quite a few of my listeners who have been specifically interested in all of my dude bro Dostoevsky talk are going to be alienated. And again, I tried to sell it. I'm like, okay, but this is actually good. Can we, like, give it a chance? And part of the reason is because a lot of people do not give it a chance. You know, and that sucks. Like, it sucks a lot. For years and years and years, girls and girlfriends have been going along with their, their menfolk to see science fiction movies and action movies and trashy movies of a variety that have absolutely just taken huge dumps on women in one way or another, and then as soon as they're like, I want to go see Bridget Jones's Diary, or, you know, the Bridget Jones sequel, suddenly they get shot. Like, I did this. I, I should emphasize this. My wife and I agree that the worst movie-going experience we've ever had was to go see the third Bridget Jones movie. And on the one hand, my wife will readily agree that it was because it was a terrible movie, but on the other hand, it's also because I made fun of her. And that 
wasn't right. Like, she saw a bunch of the shitty movies that I made her go see. Like, I tend to think that I have fairly good taste, but occasionally I pick something that's pretty awful. Um, I admittedly never went so far as to ask her to see a Transformers movie, but that doesn't mean that I haven't seen one in theaters and I haven't dragged somebody to go see it with me who otherwise was completely disinterested and honestly had to endure Michael Bay, like, friggin' infantilizing Megan Fox for, like, the better part of an hour in order to endure it. Bridget Jones's Baby was not the most offensive a movie has ever been that I've gone to see in theaters, but it's one that we tend to shit on specifically because it is for women, and when it goes badly and is for women, it is subject to a great deal of ridicule. But when it is good and is specifically for women, nobody notices. There is silence. There is not some big upswelling of, you know, adoration and, and admiration. You know, nobody got, to, nobody got, like, really, really excited about Mamma Mia and said this is a transcendent work of art, even though it was really good at doing what it did and it absolutely appealed to the demographic that it appealed to. You know, Lindsay Ellis has an entire video where she talks about, like, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, the sequel, and how perfectly it did what it set out to do, and how it was completely ignored because, you know, this was the same year that friggin' Avengers Endgame came out, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, this is awesome, this is like one of the greatest moments in movie history, etc., etc., etc. But the point here is that, no, it wasn't, it was trash. It was always trash. All of this was trash. Every part of this, start to finish, was trash. And when a superhero movie tries to be even a little bit more than trash, everybody loses their friggin' minds over it. But when a chick flick tries to be anything more than trash, nobody notices until about 30 years down the road when people start making their list of the best romantic comedies ever and they consistently show up on it. There is a lot of bad romantic comedies in the 1990s, and there are a lot of good romantic comedies in the 1990s, and the only way that you can tell the difference is either to watch them or to see how the community is reacting to them after the fact. When Harry Met Sally, awesome movie. Let me emphasize, one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. Then when my wife sat and I sat down to watch You Got Mail, I'm like, this is super creepy. Tom Hanks is totally creeping on, Me on Meg Ryan here. And when we watched Sleepless in Seattle, I was like, oh, well, now it's at least the other way around, and Meg Ryan is creeping on Tom Hanks, but still creepy and not okay. But as much as there are tons of internet think pieces talking about how awful certain women's literature and certain women's media is, Sleepless in Seattle is a stalker story. Twilight is, you know, totally, like, negative about the role of women, and, and Bella is totally passive in all of her roles. E.L. James is perpetrating some sort of really pernicious perspective on sexuality, when somebody does it right, and let me stress, Diana Gabaldon has been doing it right for 30 years, nobody notices. Or at least it takes a really long time for people to notice. And as much as, you know, I don't want to harp on the double standard thing, it's so friggin' obvious here. It is so obvious. Painfully obvious. Like, Again, nobody gets this upset about bad movies that come out targeted at dudes. Even the friggin' Star Wars prequels are having their day. But when a bad movie comes out for women, the entire society takes a collective shit on it. And when a good movie comes out for dudes, everyone 
immediately loses their mind. Everybody loves it. It's great. It's wonderful. It's transcendent, so on and so forth. But when the same thing happens for women's lit, it just doesn't get any recognition. And the really, really shitty thing about this whole business is that it is reflected in the way the economics of the situation works as well. It is totally legitimate for Netflix to green light some trashy action movie, throw enough money to put in some impressive explosions, and trust that even if it turns out to be awful, people will watch it and nobody's going to raise a stink over it. But to put the same amount of money into a movie directed at women is much more risky. Because if it goes poorly, everyone will shit on it. And if it goes well, no one will care. And that sucks! Like, even back to the 90s when the romantic comedies were at their peak, nobody was throwing the kind of money at a romantic comedy that they were sh throwing at, like, a crappy Mission Impossible entry, and I know everybody loves Mission Impossible, or a crappy Bourne entry, and again, I know everybody loves the Bourne movies, but that's exactly my point! You're chucking millions of dollars at these action movies dedicated to men, and to this day, the legacy is, eh, they were pretty good! Whereas you throw, like, a couple of hundred thousand movies or, you know, something much less at a movie with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks at it, and the legacy is, this is actually destroying relationships. That sucks. That really sucks. That is downright awful. Even down to the sort of social assumption that I made earlier when I was talking about my relationship with my wife, this idea that, you know, I've been dragging women to see crappy dude bro movies for decades before I realized, before I first got dragged to a pretty crappy, you know, chick flick. The assumption that dudes don't have to do that, that they don't want to do that, that there's nothing in it for them, and that women need to accept the fact that they are not going to do this, whereas women are supposed to enjoy and be entertained by the stuff specifically targeted towards their boyfriends, husbands, etc., that also sucks. That profoundly sucks. That is just wretched. And I am very glad that Phil Lord and Chris Miller did a whole redemption arc in the Lego Movie 2 for Glittery Vampires. And I am absolutely psyched that Pixar went so far as to make, you know, cringy teen or preteen fan fiction the center plot point of Turning Red. Yeah, that stuff needs to be out there. And we need good women's literature and good women's entertainment. Because the fact of the matter is, no, Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey aren't doing the job. Yeah, they're sketchy in a lot of ways. Maybe not as sketchy as we made them out to be once upon a time, but we need positive alternatives instead. And that's where we're talking about Outlander today. Again, it's been an hour and ten minutes of me rambling on about the history of the novel and all this nonsense, but this is why. I wanted to set the stage. I wanted to talk about why this is so significant, why Outlander is so important, because it fought its way through an incredibly hostile commercial and publication environment, took risks, like both the writer and the publisher took incredible risks to get at this point, and I think, honestly, it paid off. Like, we're not seeing Game of Thrones numbers every time the new season of Outlander comes out. Not by a long shot. But it is recouping its investment. And people are paying attention. Women are 
bonding about this stuff. Like, my wife goes on the Outlander message boards and the, the promotional pages and so on and so forth. She is an active part of the conversation, and it has been legitimately enriching for her. Like, she legitimately loves these books. And having read the first one, I can see why. Like, they're not my cup of tea. Again, I will probably read more of them as, you know, time goes on, because they are legitimately good, and I do want to, you know, have that connection with her, and it kind of sucks that, again, I expect her to do all my stuff while she can't expect me to do all of hers. But the fact of the matter is, like, this is what good romantic literature, what good chick lit is supposed to look like for a number of reasons. And I want to stress why. What is Outlander doing that makes it successful in a way that others are not, or rather, that makes it good in a way that more successful works don't? Like, again, Outlander itself has sold a lot of copies at this point in time, but we're not talking Twilight-level copies. We're not talking Fifty Shades of Grey-level copies. Like, those books remain crazy, historic bestsellers, and I don't, as far as I know, nothing in the Outlander saga has come even close. Um, but nonetheless, I think it is better work. And the fact that it hasn't come close to sale, that's another complicated question that I am very much unequipped to talk about, and I suspect we won't get into it too deeply. Um, but first off, I want to talk about, like, the actual literary merits of this book. What it is doing that definitely puts it in that camp of one foot in the trash camp and one foot in the, the you know, literary camp. And part of that is just because it is very historically accurate. Like, for those of you who are not familiar with it, and yeah, we do need to sort of talk about the brief synopsis here, since, again, I expect that there are a fair number of my listeners who are not familiar with this story or this, this arc. The basic premise of Outlander is that there is this woman back in the 1950s, shortly out of the, out of the World War II, where she was a nurse, who gets thrust back in time from 1960s Scotland into, like, 1870s Scotland, or 1770s Scotland, my mistake. Um, we are talking about getting plunged back in time all the way to the Jacobite Rebellion. Um, which, P.S., at least for American audiences, this is not something they typically know about all that much. So, you know, Body Prince Charlie was not something that they covered in their history courses for some crazy reason. Um, so we got a time travel story. That's, that's the first hook here. But this is not like Doctor Who time travel. This is not even like time machine time travel where, you know, the primary hook of time travel is the thing that gets the plot moving. No, the, the time travel is really an excuse here. It is so we can send Claire back in time so she can have a romantic connection with this guy, Jamie, who is an awesome Scottish soldier slash rebel slash outcast who is, you know, working with his family and his greater clan in order to, like, stick it to the British, but also, you know, without being noticed in the process because he's already run afoul of some British soldiers on a number of, uh, of occasions. So the first thing I need to emphasize here is there's a lot of historical accuracy, a lot of historical research here, and the plot is rooted in this, not the time travel stuff. 
like, yeah, there's some time travel stuff. There's the usual shenanigans, the, you know, like, I am from the future and I'm confused about the situation. They think that she's a witch at first, and it's this whole thing. Um, but increasingly, as the story moves on, especially in the, the sequels and so on and so forth, the time travel kind of becomes less important and really just serves as an excuse to include pop culture references and a perspective that we, the audience, can appreciate when we are dealing with historical grand historical problems and grand historical drama that would have been normal back in the 18th and or back in the late 18th century um that's the hook here it's not time travel story you know star-crossed lovers across hundreds of years though there is a little bit of that the key here is let's see if modern sensibilities and 18th century sensibilities can coexist and the ultimate question is not so much you know, like, will they, won't they, as will she stay in the 1960s, or are the is the 18th century better for Claire and for her family? Um, she stops trying to go home, is what the key is here. Um, which makes this a romance in the, you know, literary sense, as well as a romance in the generic sense. Like, yes, this is a romance between Claire and Jamie, you know, these lovers across time, but also it is very much romanticizing the 18th century. But not. Because here's the trick. Again, this is rooted in historical accuracy and research. These are real problems at the time, and Gabaldon does not shy away from the realities of living in an 18th century Scottish castle. The filth, the threat of disease, the hideous wounds that the soldiers suffer at various times, the regular death that, like, surrounds them at all times, the economic injustices, and the, you know, for that matter, racial injustices of the British against the Scottish and elsewhere. You know, these are real problems for these characters to wrestle with. And there's no, you know, grand overarching thematic message here as far as, like, you know, what is racism or, or so on and so forth. These are just realities. These are issues that these characters are dealing with. This is a story first. And I want to emphasize that. Because there are, you know, a lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy, a lot of stories that use these sorts of, you know, big, high conceptual, uh, like, plot devices in order to get their their ideas mo moving, get the story rolling, are really, at the end of the day, just sort of allegorical in some sense, symbolic. You know, you read a science fiction short story, and ultimately what you're getting is, hey, you know, we spend too much time on our cell phones, or we need to, like not trust technology, or we need to not mess with forces we don't understand. There's a big message in everything about the story is in service to the message. But literature, generally speaking, has the story in service to itself. There is no highfalutin message, or, or if there is a message, it's kind of secondary. The realistic novel, as long as it's been around, like even since the, the time of Jane Austen, has very much been, okay, here are these characters, here are these situations, let's see them wrestle with their environment, let's give an act, as accurate a picture as possible of these circumstances, and see how what drama develops out of it. So in a real sense... Outlander and Diana Gabaldon's whole series is very much an inheritor of the Jane Austen tradition, an inheritor of the realistic novel tradition, an inheritor of the, you know, story first, characters first, and big themes, big uh, literary, or big, like, message second, if at all. 
there are these things. Like, again, Outlander has a lot to say about racism. It has a lot to say about sexism. It has a lot to say about economic disparity. It has a lot to say about cultural differences. It has a lot to say about communication and understanding and relationships. Like, all of these things are present, but because they're the things that the characters interact with and the things that the characters run into in their day-to-day -day activity, they are not forced upon the novel. They are encountered through the novel. Which is the second thing that I want to talk about. Um, again, the conflict, the plot, the, the real problems that this novel is wrestling with are rooted in the 18th century. And the other sort of side of this, the reason why we get to explore all of these fascinating historical developments and social realities of the late 18th century in Scotland and later in America, is because the characters stick with it. Like... I have always had a little bit of confusion about why people are grumpy about soap operas. Like, again, that definitely fits into the conversation we're talking about here, and serialized drama is very much on the table when you talk about women's literature, especially in the 20th century. Um, and Outlander definitely falls into the category of serialized drama, much as it is a series of novels rather than, you know, like episodic television or whatever. I've always been curious about why people dump on soap operas. And the same conversation goes here as with Twilight and with Fifty Shades of Grey, where, you know, yes, it's not great, but why do we dump on it as much as we do? Because it's specifically dedicated to women, etc., etc. But the melodrama, the, the thing that makes soap operas ridiculous, is always something that I consider a little fuzzy. High melodrama can be used to great artistic purposes, like, you know, James Cameron's Titanic uses high melodrama in order to do awesome things. And again, we have something that's dedicated towards women and controversy and middle schooler me shrieking in the aisles. Um, but nonetheless, like, there's lots of cool melodrama out there in stuff that's for dudes as well. Like, half of what's going on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in any given moment is high melodrama. It is lots of characters getting, you know, upset with each other for contrived plot reasons like Iron Man and Captain America having a feud because, you know, Bucky assassinated Iron Man's pit. Like, that is totally soap opera nonsense, and there is no reason why we give that a pass when we don't give soap opera amnesia stories a pass. Whatever. Um, but importantly for Outlander, this serialization, the development of the characters, is the key driving process to the novel as series. Like, in the original novel, the original Outlander, it can very much stand by itself and be its own thing, not questioning that in the slightest. It ends on a good on a good note. It could theoretically be done at that point. Again, it's the only one I've read. But I should emphasize, from my knowledge about this, of the show, from my knowledge talking to my wife about this, the key that draws her to Outlander again and again and again, the reason why she has sort of, like, latched onto these books especially is because the characters have been developed and grown over a long period of time. Like, there's close to a dozen books in the series at this point, I'm pretty sure. Um, the most recent came out only last... last year? Yes, last year. And, you know, like Game of Thrones, it is being published concurrently with the release of the series. Unlike Game of Thrones, it'll be a while before they actually catch up to what Gabaldon is doing, and... Gabaldon, unlike George R. R. Martin, actually wants to get these books done. Um, but importantly, the characters have developed and grown, have built relationships over the course of this series, and on a scope that we don't see very often in literature, period. Like, Claire and Jamie have aged a lot 
over the course of these books. They've had a kid, the kids have grown up, they are now living with Jamie and, and Claire, and they have, you know, a complex family dynamic, as well as a complex social dynamic with the community, as well as all of the random, like, people that they picked up along the way as adopted children, or, you know, friends of the family, or whatever. All of these things are motivated by their situation. Again, the historical realities of the day, meticulously researched by Gabaldon. But they also are human. Like... Some of these are definitely highfalutin, high-concept ideas. You know, you've got, like, criminals escaping from jail and threatening people. You've got, you know, like, plague ravaging them. You've got, you know, crazy circumstances that don't seem terribly likely, like Claire getting totally separated from everybody else and having to, like, make her way in the world from square one and not get convicted of being a witch at one point. Like... Some of these are major plot contrivances, and when they do, they're they're fine. They're fun, or not fun, or appropriately horrifying, or appropriately revealing about the realities of the day, whatever. But the overarching development, Claire and Jamie's relationship going from a tense, you know, bodice-ripping setup where, like, Claire is forced to marry Jamie lest she be, you know like, exiled or, or killed or executed, and Jamie being a gentleman about it, but also being kind of forceful and, you know, super sexy in that way, and him being kind of a bad boy, but also kind of being sensitive and loving, like, all of these are very much par for the course for this, for this genre. Like, these are romantic tropes, and they are, you know, classically ridiculed even when they're done well, as they are done well here. But what really sets this apart is not, you know, book one, Claire and Jamie's initial relationship. It's that nine books later, they're old, and they have kids, and they still care about each other, and they are still dealing with the problems as a team, and we are no longer relying on silly, dramatic plot points like miscommunications or, you know, like... Uh, ridiculous sitcom tropes like, you know, somebody is lying to cover up the fact or, you know, ridiculous disguises or, or any of that stuff. They care about each other. And they have been caring about each other for a very long time to the point that they know each other so well that they function like an old married couple. And that's really neat when you think about it. It is rare for any book series or otherwise, to explore the actual development of a relationship from its inception to its full development. And I would fully expect not only that Claire and Jamie will be, you know, tracked and traced up until their death here, likely in very mature old age, but that the book wouldn't stop at that point, and that it will go on to tell the story of its kids and be perfectly able to do so, perfectly able to derive drama from this stuff. The relationships on display are rich, nuanced, and well-realized. And, you know, again, so much of Chick Lit has been criticized because it falls into these tropey behaviors. Again, the bodice-ripping man who's a bad boy, but also misunderstood, but also sensitive. You know, and the, the like, wilting flower who is, you know, like, just waiting to be rescued and, and sort of haplessly being captured by villains and pirates and whatever... You know, as much as that is part of the DNA of this novel, it only serves to sort of build a relationship that is much more meaningful than this. That is actually dealing with the trauma of, I was captured by pirates, or I was raped by someone who, you know, was using me for their own pleasure or political gain. 
it's wrestling with the fallout of these issues and not just dealing with what was sexual or titillating. Which brings me to my next point here. We gotta talk about the romance in this romance novel. We gotta talk about what good romance is in order to appreciate exactly what Outlander is doing so well. And again, I have taken a number of pot shots through this lecture at romance that I consider either superficial or pernicious or kind of creepy. You know, again, I tend to think that Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, two of like the most famous 90s romantic comedies and, and frequently some of the most well-cited classics of the genre, are actually super creepy and kind of messed up. Um, I do not feel the same way about Outlander. Like, as much as the setup here is, again, kind of weird and creepy, it is also a necessity of the time. It's backed by the plot. This is an 18th century world where women are not allowed to just roam around doing whatever they darn well please, much as Claire is, and so she is married for her own protection, and that makes sense. Admittedly, she doesn't like it, and admittedly it is a plot contrivance, and admittedly it is as much for, you know titillating the reader as it is for actual, like, discussion of, of 18th century marriage conventions, but I'm willing to buy it in a way that I'm not willing to buy Tom Hanks creepily stalking Meg Ryan over email and you've got mail as being socially acceptable because this was in 1990 and that would have been creepy back then. No, what I'm talking about with romance here is the way that Jamie and Claire's interaction is more than just sexual, and is more than just purely titillating for the reader as well. Which are not necessarily the same thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. The romance here is not exploitative. Both Jamie and Claire are participants and partners in their relationship. Much as Claire is brought into the romance, brought into the marriage against her will, or at least with a lot of reservations, ultimately the relationship between these two people is human. Jamie's a decent person. He is considerate of Claire's situation, more so than is actually all that believable in the 18th century. Like, if I, in fact, had a historical accuracy claim, it would be, you know, I don't buy that Jamie is as good as a guy he, as he is here, which I'm, again, willing to suspend my disbelief for the purposes of, of the novel and, and what Gabaldon is trying to do. Um, there is more tolerance on the part of Jamie than I would have expected from the average dude in Scotland in the 18th century at this time. But that's okay. It's within acceptable parameters. It is within believable parameters. I assume that there are decent men who actually care about their wives in the 18th century just as there are decent men who care about their wives in the 21st century. They may be more of a minority in the 18th century than they are in the 21st century, though they are likely still a minority here in the 21st century, if my experience has anything to say about it. Nonetheless, I'm willing to buy. Okay, Jamie is a weirdly decent dude. Cool. But if that was all that there was to it, then there wouldn't be much to comment on here. No, what Gabaldon is doing is exploring what it means to be a decent man in this relationship. And Jamie is, in fact, listening and learning and developing as a character, becoming a better person as the novels go on. He is not perfect, hunky, bodice-ripper, sensitive and misunderstood and tortured, you know, from moment one and stays that way forever so he could be, like, the perfect 
you know, romantic partner for Claire, the way that a lot of the characters and a lot of the other sort of disparaged chicklet tends to be, you know, like Edward doesn't do a whole lot of developing in the Twilight Saga. He just goes from being, you know, tragically misunderstood, sensitive dude to tragically misunderstood, sensitive dude. No character development necessary. Whereas here, Jamie actually does mature and change. He learns to trust Claire. He learns to be interested in what she has to say. He learns to rely on her, and their relationship develops apace. They grow. They become different people. They learn how to be the best versions of themselves here. And that's not like, you know, a happy-go-lucky world they're living in. No, this is despite the fact that Claire is constantly being threatened, that Jamie is constantly being imprisoned or, or threatened in his own right, that they are dealing with the ugly political realities of the day, that they are dealing with, you know, oppression and taxation and all of these problems. They are dealing with hostile, you know, community members and petty political drama and all of that stuff, and yet they still trust each other. They still learn to be closer together. They still come home and have a home to come to. They are, in fact, in love. And that's one of the things that I really want to emphasize here. Like, even since Shakespeare, the romantic comedy has typically ended with the marriage. Like, romance after romance is, oh, we care about each other. Oh, there's a miscommunication. Oh, there's an obstacle in our path. But our love overcomes it. And then we finally, like, all the, the problems are resolved and we admit our feelings for each other. And now we get married and roll credits. Look, marriage is hard. You know, as someone who has been married for seven years at this point, it is not a walk in the park. There are a lot of tough things to it. Like, I don't think my marriage is any more difficult than anybody else's, um, but I also don't think that it's remarkably less difficult. It's work, is what it comes down to. Like I said, back in my love and friendship lecture about, you know, G.K. Chesterton and, and C.S. Lewis, love is work, romance is works, marriage is work, and anyone who's telling the otherwise is cheating you out of a decent part of the story. And that includes all those 90, 90s romantic comedies where it seems like a relationship just magically evolves and develops to the point that everyone is cool with it and then presumably they live happily ever after. Outlander has the marriage halfway through the book and it doesn't resolve any of their problems. Like, we are way far away from happily ever after when in fact Claire and Jamie get married. We are in the miscommunication act two phase of the story. And by the end of the book, when in fact, you know, Claire and Jamie have learned to rely on each other to a certain degree, we're still not done by a long shot. They gotta be together. They have to deal with each other's eccentricities. The fact that Claire is operating from a, you know, feminism-liberated 1960s mindset in an 18th century world, and Jamie has to somehow wrestle with that mindset against his own assumptions about what the world and what a relationship is supposed to look like. What are the advantages to having a strong woman in the house, and what are the disadvantages? Likewise, Claire has to deal with the fact that Jamie is expecting something from her that she is not interested in giving him. There is a constant push and pull between these two characters. They are, you know... Adult humans with their own desires and their own problems and their own struggles and their own interests, their own failings and their own trauma. 
And they are trying to deal with this the best that they can. And sometimes they screw up. Sometimes Claire is too secretive about some trauma that she's experienced or she's dealing with a drug addiction or whatever. And sometimes Jamie is not being terribly upfront about the political intrigues that he's engaged in or the problems that he's wrestling with or, you know, the issues that he himself has not gotten over. You know, like people do. This is a story about a romance in the sense that a romance is a lifelong occupation. Not insofar as romance is something that you do for six months, get married, and now it's over. And that's a really mature way to look at relationships. Something that, again, literature doesn't give us a whole lot of examples of. Like, there are, in the grand tradition of the literary world, lots of stories of romances. Again, Shakespeare loved those early quasi-romantic comedies where a bunch of characters had a bunch of miscommunications and obstacles to overcome before everybody got married at the end. We also have a grand tradition in literature of unhappy marriages. Guys and girls keeping secrets from each other, or Raymond Carver-esque suburban drama, or, you know these sorts of, like, stewing, quiet, subtle problems that are ultimately undermining the marriage, or, you know, divorce stories, as we seem to be especially popular now here in the 20th and 21st centuries, we recognize that marriage is frequently unhappy, and therefore, you know, we will tell the story of a marriage falling apart as readily as we will tell a story of a marriage starting to come together. But we tend to be really shy about talking about functional marriages, the work that is involved in that process. It happens sometimes. Like, one of my all-time favorite, again, quote, literary novels is John Steinbeck's The Winner of Our Discontent, because it is, in large part, about a marriage that is quasi-functional. There is a lot of good that both the husband and wife in that book are doing to keep their marriage going, and yet they do keep secrets from each other, and there is tension between the two of them. Because, again, they're independent people with their own independent interests, and they don't always see 100% eye to eye. It is a story not about a marriage falling apart, but about a life falling apart during a marriage, which is a very different thing. Outlander is about these two people figuring each other out, growing and developing in the context of their commitment and relying on that commitment for strength and support. You know, the way a healthy marriage is supposed to work. And talking about that drama and that these problems openly is something that you really can't do in a one-off novel or in some literary work that's got something else on its mind or that is, in fact, thematically or message-focused. Since Outlander is talking about people first, story first, you know, relationships first, and seeing what these characters bump into along the natural progress of history, there's a lot of room for them to, you know, grow and figure each other out and support each other and develop. And I'm not saying that their relationship is perfect. It is nuanced. It is complicated. But it is truthful. It is fair. No punches are pulled. Gabaldon does not gloss over the ease or the problems with a marriage and turn it into an easy, but it's all okay because they love and trust each other, nor is she defaulting to the, oh, it's just a lost cause, let's everybody give up and let's watch this train wreck, you know, happen in slow motion. No, she has these characters fight for their relationships, for their, you know, companionship, for their marriage. And that's a hell of a thing to see, a very rare thing to see. Like, 
I have literally shelves upon shelves of books that I am looking at at this very moment. You know, like eight full shelves, hundreds of books that, I, that are, you know, immediately at my fingertips to talk about. And I don't think I can pick a single one of them that goes into the details of how marriage works, how a relationship works, how romance works on a long enough timeline that Outlander does. Like, zero. Like, I'm looking at the whole of the works of William Faulkner. Nope, definitely not. All of these interests in are in dysfunctional marriages and relationships and so on and so forth. I got some Jonathan Franzen novels. I could definitely make a push for, you know, Crossroads or Freedom or The Corrections possibly featuring one of these marriages. And for some reason, I can't get anybody to read Jonathan Franzen. I don't know why. But other than this, it's like, you know, I got some Dostoevsky, but they're usually not about marriage so much. I got some Tolstoy. I mean, Anna Karenina, oh, Anna Karenina is famously about, like, destruction and marriage falling apart and adultery and all that stuff. Yeah, it's just, it's not forthcoming. <laughs> this is a rare feat, something that is worth noticing. And, you know, as much as I've had a lot of difficulty trying to quantify exactly what literature is all about, what makes good literature good literature, one of the things that I keep coming back to is, is it something that I can find elsewhere easily? And the fact of the matter is, I can find time travel stories easily. I can find stories about marriages falling apart easily. I can find romance stories pretty easily. But for me to have this much trouble talking about realistic relationships that between committed partners, and for me to say this one book is probably the single best representation over a long enough scale, that's a hell of a recommendation. Like, there's literally nothing else like this in my experience. Nothing. This is unique. And not unique because of some impressive, you know, gimmicky science fiction idea or some conceptual, you know, thing that makes it unique or special or even some artistic thing that makes it unique or special. You know, I can recommend everything everywhere all at once because it's just bonkers aesthetically and has all of these weird choices from a visual perspective or from a storytelling perspective that are unusual because they're ideologically unusual. It is more rare and honestly more impressive when I can say this is unusual despite the fact that it shouldn't be. That it is unique for its truthfulness and not for its intellectual, you know, imaginative creativity or something like that. This is weird because it's true, and it's true about something that people do not talk about. That literature has been bad at covering, except in glimpses and touches and tiny little details. This puts the spotlight on a married couple in a way that virtually no one else cares. And maybe it's significant to say that this is women's literature. That this is interesting in a way that it isn't for dudes, apparently. But it is! Like, I'm fascinated. I want to see a functional marriage at work. Like, I need all the help that I can get. Like, I do okay as a husband, I think. But I certainly want, you know, better examples than the friggin' Sartoruses or, you know, I don't know, like bringing breakfast at Tiffany's to sort of explain how I'm supposed to relate to my wife. Like, much as I love Chesterton and Man Alive and 
point to that as a great example of, of good marriage, much as I point to Ethan Hawley in, in The Winner of Our Discontent and say, okay, that's the good, a good model for marriage, much as I might look at War and Peace or Anna Karenina for examples of positive relationships, at the end of the day, like, they're going to give me these tiny little glimpses of how a functional marriage works. Where Gabaldon's entire 10, 12 book series is going to be nothing but that. It's going to give me all the information I need. Is going to reveal to me what my wife wants from a relationship. What she wants from a partner. What she wants from a husband. In a way that none of those other writers are going to. Because it hasn't been considered literary. Because it hasn't been considered valuable. For some stupid, ridiculous reason. Why in God's name has this been overlooked for as long as it has? Why is it that the only realistic approximations of, hey, this is what marriage is like, until like the 19th century, are the friggin' tale of Genji and, you know, maybe, like... Oh, I don't even know. Maybe a couple of glimpses in Homer or in Euripides or something? Why is that? Why is that? So, first and foremost, the thing that has always struck me about this book and what is most significant about this book is that it does that. It dares to try and explain the vicissitudes of a marriage without pulling punches, without turning it into, you know, divorce drama or without turning it into adultery or without turning it into any number of things, though addressing those things wouldn't is appropriate. Let's talk about people, how they relate to each other. That's a heck of a thing to do without histrionics, without gimmicky, you know, gotcha soap opera histrionics. That's worth reading all by itself. But of course, Romance is an important part of this, and romance is probably the most important part of it for me. But we can't talk about, you know, chick lit, and Outlander especially, without talking about sex. Like, actual sex scenes. Because that's a lot of what people are reading these for. You know, the reason why Fifty Shades of Grey was as popular as it was, was not because of the relationship between Mr. Grey and his victim slash partner slash inner goddess slash whatever she is. It's about the sex. The sex scenes are a part of this whole story as well. Harlequin Books was selling lots of cool romance novels and then they put in some explicit sex scenes and suddenly became the biggest most important publisher in the world. The sex scenes are important. And on the one hand, again, People freak out about this stuff. It is not talked about enough insofar as, like, a healthy sex life, a healthy sexual relationship, a healthy sex life between married partners, all of that stuff. But we also have to talk about, like, how many bad friggin' sex scenes there are out there. Like, I've written in one of my essays, I think on the, the Dengen Ronpa essay, but I've talked about it elsewhere as well. I'm kind of a prude when it comes to sex scenes. Like... I just groan and roll my eyes when some, you know, edgy HBO drama decides to, like, give us a sex scene. Or when, you know, I'm getting to that part of the book where it's like, now finally the hero and the heroine are getting together. You know, it is rare that you will get the Ben Kozlowski stamp of approval on your sex scene. More often than not, I am just grumpy and annoyed, and that's the point where I'm going to put the book down. Um, and part of that may be, speaking to my constitution, maybe I'm just like, 
you know, weird in, as far as my sexual proclivities and tastes are concerned. I don't know. Not going to read into that. I'm certainly not going to reveal my sexual proclivities, so you're going to have nothing but speculation on that front. I have always understood it as I detest bad sex scenes. And good sex scenes are really friggin' hard to do. That's how I've always understood it for myself, because there are good sex scenes in literature, and I have run into them from time to time, and I treasure them when they show up. But generally speaking, it doesn't happen. Now, as far as bad sex scenes are concerned, I tend to put them in pretty obvious and straightforward categories. First off, I hate sex scenes that are just titillation. Like, if it is just pornography, in like shoehorned into the book that I'm reading for the sake of, you know, making the reader, like, horny or something, I, I'm not interested. Nope, fuck that nonsense. I don't like it. it. It's gross. It's manipulative. I typically don't get turned on by it, and when I am turned on by it, I am annoyed by the author because I don't want to necessarily be turned on in every moment of the day, unlike apparently every other person on the face of the earth. It annoys me. And I have seen so many of these. Like, I think the most egregious example of a purely titillating sex scene in the middle of an otherwise serious work of art, was, or at least the one that I remember the most because I noticed it so much when, when it happened. Um, back in the mid-2000s, there was a movie released on sort of like the HBO It's Super Serious model um, called The History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen. And it was after the Lord of the Rings movies, and I love Viggo Mortensen, and I was like, okay, I'll check this out. And I was just disgusted. Um, it is not a good movie. I don't think anybody likes that movie. It has very much fallen off the face of the earth and good riddance as far as I'm concerned. But it was very much doing, we are a violent movie because violence is objectionable and inflammatory and con controversial. And there were some really explicit sex scenes which were also just there to be explicit sex scenes. Like... They did not add to the character. They did not inform our understanding of these people. They were just like, and now, sex. You like sex, right? Everybody likes sex. Here, have some sex. And I was just grossed out by it. And I continue to be grossed out by sex scenes a lot. Now, there is a sort of dogma in literary writing and, and film writing and so on and so forth that the thing about sex scenes, the reason why they're so sort of dangerous to write and so difficult to write, is because everybody reacts to them differently. Like, the thing about sex is that everybody is turned on by different stuff. And I'm not talking about just the, you know, heterosexual-homosexual divide, although that's an issue in its own right. Like, obviously, a heterosexual kiss is going to mean something different to a homosexual audience. Um, and vice versa, for that matter. Um, but also just on a fundamental basic level, like, we are turned on and turned off by different things. I find it creepy that, you know, there is this, like, very one-sided relationship in Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail where one person is virtually stalking the other one. But apparently for somebody else, that amount of work and intensity is in fact romantic. Um, so, who knows? Maybe what I consider creepy and stalkery, you consider attractive and sexy and romantic. Don't know. Not going to read too deeply into it. Suffice it to say, people get turned on by different stuff. So if you are, in fact, putting a sex scene into your movie or into your book or into whatever, for the pure purposes of titillation, you are rolling the dice, man. You have no idea what the reaction is going to be. Um, maybe somebody will be turned on by it. Maybe they won't be. Maybe it'll seem inappropriate to them. Maybe it won't be. Who knows? The thing about Outlander sex scenes is that 
they are consistently hot. And I say that as someone who, again, is prudish and not interested in titillation for the sake of titillation, specifically because they are not just trying to be hot. Sex scenes in Outlander are rarely ever frictionless. It's not like, and then he immediately entered her, and they came, and it was great, and everybody, like, went home and was super happy. No, like, they, they knock things over. They fumble around in the dark. They screw up from time to time. You know, the dynamism of sex is represented accurately there. Sometimes things just don't come off. Or sometimes things just degenerate, and it becomes silly or ridiculous. Because that's how sex works. Like... I'm not speaking as an expert on sex here, but I don't think I know anyone who has had the totally hot, 100% of the time, sexual encounter without it becoming awkward or silly or stupid or gross at some point during the process. Sex is awkward. Like, as much as, you know, literature can ignore the awkwardness of sex because it can ignore the physicality of bodies and just make it sound like penises and vaginas just like magically fit together all of the time and thus lots of romantic or lots of the appeal of romance literature is because it can get away from the awkward physicality of you know skin bumping into each other and mouths and private parts and penises and just the ridiculousness of the whole business. Um, Outlander doesn't do that. Outlander acknowledges the weird physicality, the, you know, strangeness of two people sharing a closeness, both physically and emotionally, and how it frequently just goes off the rails, how it isn't controlled, how it isn't perfect, how it isn't necessarily even romantic. Um, Likewise, the other thing that I find is a pretty common problem with sex scenes in just about every version of sex scenes out there um, is they're typically casual. Like, again, it is really rare for the sex scene that is being presented to you to be presented between two committed people in a relationship. Um, and when it is, it's usually emphasizing the awkwardness, or the stupidity, or the grossness, or the weirdness of the situation. Uh, like, some of the best sex scenes I've ever read are, in fact, doing that. Uh, like, one of my all-time favorite sex scenes in the history of sex scenes is, weirdly enough, from John Gardner's Mickelson's Ghosts. And he's like, just slept with this girl who may or may not be a prostitute and he feels really uncomfortable about it and he's feeling kind of guilty about it but she is definitely in it to win it so she's like manipulating him um it's weird and it's uncomfortable and it's even stressful at points in times like Mickelson's whole thing is he's worried he's gonna like have a heart attack during sex at one point so he's like cautiously optimistic about the outcome of these things the awkwardness makes it work and awkwardness frequently does make sex scenes work. But it is also, in this particular case, is a personal. Um, it's a functional good sex scene, but it is a functional good sex scene where the people involved are basically doing sex as a transaction. It is not intimate. It is just physical. And I want to emphasize there is a difference between these two categories that I'm talking about. I am just put off by purely titillating sex scenes, usually because they don't work for me, and because if I really wanted to just be sexually excited, I've got a plenty of other ways to just do that that are way more efficient and that don't interrupt me reading this lovely book that I'm enjoying. This is a different complaint. 
I tend to think that awkward, gross, and impersonal sex scenes do in fact work, and are in fact more trustworthy to work, because we have lower expectations for them than we do, like, the bodice ripper, you know, everybody's heart in their throats, super awesome, everybody has a magic orgasm sex scene that frequently is employed during titillating sex scenes. I am more forgiving of the awkward sex scene, but I don't, that doesn't change the fact that there is a dearth of good sex scenes that are also intimate and meaningful. And that's the crazy needle that Outlander manages to thread. And I can literally say that, in, again, in my history of reading sex scenes, of which there have been many, I can point to literally one other time that I have seen sex represented as both meaningful and intimate and also hot at the same time. And that's in the work of Samuel R. Delaney, who is a gay black science fiction writer usually talking about gay interactions between men. And I should stress, I'm not gay, and I still find those scenes really friggin' hot. Um, like, not my thing, and in fact I was pretty turned off by it when it tends to get super titillating, but especially in his book, um, The Motion of Light and Water, where he's talking about like his own sexual experiences in New York in the, the 70s, I believe. It's just nice. He is honest about it. He is forthright. He is willing to admit, you know... This was awkward and uncomfortable, but I needed it at this point in time, and it made me feel better anyway. And that's just ridiculously straightforward and ridiculously rare. So literally, that's it. Like, if I were, if somebody came up to me off the street and said, what is the best, best sex scene you've ever read, I would be forced to choose between these two books, because literally nothing else would apply. Um, and once again, we are in unique territory. And I should stress, like, this is just me coming at this as, you know, again, a dude who has only limited connection to these books, who doesn't take them as being super important, and who, again, hasn't gone forward with the, with the series. Much as I have a lot of nice things to say about Outlander, much as I think it's a fascinating case study, much as I want badly for more of chick lit and romantic literature to look like this, to have this level of quality, to have this level of interest in intimacy, in interpersonal relationships, and in sex portrayed honestly and well. I also need to emphasize that, like, I'm still an outsider on this one. And part of the reason why my wife wanted me to talk about these books as much as she did is because they really were meaningful to her. She had never seen in all of her life, a relationship that combined the intimacy and the sexuality as successful as it is presented here between Claire and Jamie. Like, it didn't exist for her. And thinking back, where would you have found it? Not in the Twilight novels, not in Fifty Shades of Grey, not in all those Harlequin bodice-ripping romances. The idea that one can have a successful sexual relationship in a married environment is foreign to our culture. Weirdly, crazily, stupidly foreign. And my wife believes in sex as a part of a married relationship because of these books. Like, she's said as much to me. If these books are an interesting curio for me, something that I'm interested in discussing, definitely interested in raising awareness about, definitely want to talk about openly because, again, so few people are doing it, and because it is so wrapped up in myopias and marginalizations and, you know, dude marginalization of women's literature and the whole thing, that whole thing, 
It's fascinating to me, but it's meaningful to her. And if it was meaningful to her, then it can be meaningful to others as well. Why in God's name would we dump on people who are doing this kind of work when it is as formative as an, and as important to a woman's development and a woman's recognition of her own sexuality as any of the trashy, awful, perverse views of romance that we see, like, thrown out by Hollywood or, or by, you know, like, exploitative quasi-pornographic novels on a regular basis. Why are we dumping on this shit? What in God's name is wrong with us? That we are not willing to celebrate, to recognize, to acknowledge that there is a huge perverse problem with our culture that we are not willing to talk about sex as though it is something positive, something good, something real, and be able to communicate this to the women in our lives. That women are growing up unmoored, with no art to guide them, as far as this is concerned, except, again, pornography and bullshit. Like, people have been talking for a while now about the unrealistic standards on women's beauty that are being sort of, like, promulgated among men who watch pornography. We recognize that this is a problem. Men are looking to their sex lives with unrealistic standards because they've been watching pornography for their entire development. Now, I can't speak to that. I wasn't doing that when I was a kid. Call it weird. Call it perverse. Call it whatever. Abnormal. Don't care. Not interested. Not the not the point I'm trying to make here, if we see that as a problem, then what the hell is going on with women? Because we're not talking about it. Like, my wife was raised in a very conservative Christian environment. She got the purity seminars. She got the handbooks talking about saving yourself for God. She, talk, she had, you know, conversations where basically people were talking about your virginity is the only virtue that a woman has. You know, regressive 18th century Wollstonecraft tearing her hair out shit. And yes, that's bad, and we are willing to admit as a society that that is largely pernicious and it only exists in these certain fairly closed communities at this point in time. But we don't have something to fill the void. We don't have some widely culturally accepted practice where women are trained to understand their sexuality and see in artistic representation what good sexuality is supposed to look like. So no wonder we're getting inundated with fan fiction and with vampire novels and from, you know, 13-year-olds writing this sort of myopic, crazy, turning red-style view of what sex and romance is supposed to look like. But this, the problem is 13-year-olds are reading these 13-year-olds as their standard when they don't understand it. Because there isn't anything else out there. There is this huge, gaping void where art could fill. And yet because of the biases, because of men dumping on this shit, because of the lack of economic viability, because of the lack of resources out there, it doesn't exist. God help us if we think that sex is this diabolical, this forbidden, this dangerous, this suspicious. Like, I don't know about you, but as soon as my niece, like, I have one niece who is, you know, right now very young and definitely not at all interested in sexuality. She is taking her ballerina classes, and that is, like, the best thing in the world for her because she's, like, four or five. I don't know. I don't remember ages. When the time comes, I hope she reads out later. 
Like, I'm not in a position to make the judgment. I'm definitely not going to force it on her. Like, her mom, her dad, they can make the decisions as far as that's concerned. But I hope to God that she ends up reading something like Outlander. Something that teaches her that sexuality is not some forbidden fruit that she is not allowed to touch and that will ultimately is, like, forbidden to her, even here in the 21st century. I also hope she doesn't read the tragically bad portrayals of sexuality and romance that are frequent in the fanfiction communities or in the 90s romantic comedy scene or any of these sorts of weird like warped views of sexuality that are frequently promulgated in our popular culture. I hope that she finds some example of sexuality and romance being realistically and reasonably paired. That her ideal for what romance is supposed to look like is just like the one that my wife found. The one that Gabaldon is trying to teach us. That's really important. Really important. Like, I cannot stress how important this is. So, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because as much as, yeah, I think there's lots of cool stuff to be found in so much of, you know, big capital I important literature, you know, your Dostoevsky and your Joyce and your Melville and your, you know, great writers who have done great things and who we continue to read century after century after century. The fact of the matter is, most people are going to read trash. They're going to be attracted to trash and they're going to read trash because trash is more fun and because there's a lot of really good trash out there. Like, I love reading trash. Like, talk to me about Raymond Chandler sometime. We'll, we'll have a fun conversation. He's not even that trash. Outlander is some of the best trash I have ever read in my life. And I want to emphasize that. I want to underscore it. I want to underline it. I want to shout it to the heavens. This book is doing something truly great. Something that is desperately needed. Something that has, up until this point, been filled by Jane Austen novels 150 years after they were written. By, you know, trashy romance novels that were totally commercially motivated. And by really cheap, poor understandings of literature readily found on the internet or readily peddled in, in bookstores for preteens who didn't understand what sex was any better than the writers who are, you know, presenting it to them. This is mature. Like, real mature. Not mature as in, we have lots of violence and sex because that's awesome. But mature in the sense of, this is a grown person talking about sexuality from a mature perspective who actually understands what good sex is supposed to look like, what good romance is supposed to look like, what good relationships are supposed to look like, without cutting corners, without pussyfooting about, you know, happily ever afters or fairy tale nonsense. We need this. We need it desperately. And if anything, it is a shame that more women aren't finding it sooner. That they are being given way worse trash than this. So, do yourself a favor. If you haven't read Gabaldon's Outlander, do that. If you're a dude, if you're a girl, if you are gay or straight, if you are anything, read it. And then find the people who could benefit from it and give it to them. There's so little out there. It is painful. Or at the very least, if there's more out there than I appreciate, it's because it's invisible. It's because it is being widely overlooked 
by a culture that is obsessed with whatever 13-year-old boys are into at this particular moment, and somehow seem to totally disregard what 13-year-old girls might be into at this particular moment, and even insult them when, in fact, they decide to speak up for themselves. That sucks. Let's fix it. Gabaldon is one of the ones leading the charge here. Sorry if that was overly long, unnecessarily complicated, and not your speed, but obviously I care about it, and I care about my wife, and I care about this whole business, and I did, in fact, want to talk about it. Next time we'll be on more traditional fare. The request of the day is to talk about the Gilgamesh. So I am going to be doing my research over the next few days. Hopefully by the end of this week I will have a lecture for you. We will talk about Gilgamesh and the foundations of the epic hero tradition altogether. Um, so all of you dudes who totally were tuning out for this entire lecture, feel free to come back for this one. And for all of you ladies who may have decided to listen to this because it suited your fancy, maybe come listen to me talking about dude bro stuff because some of it is cool and good anyway. And, you know, this one's kind of super famous and important. Um, so I look forward to talking to you soon about this stuff. In the meantime, happy reading and definitely give those romance novels a chance. It is as formative to our culture as anything else these days, whether we want to admit it or not, and whether we find it personally important or not. Go! We will talk soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.